Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. I am Amy Gunn, and I will be your host for today's episode. Hello, everyone. Today, I have the great privilege of spending time with Federal Magistrate Judge Willie J. Epps, Jr. of the Western District of Missouri. Judge Epps was appointed magistrate on July 17, 2017, and sits at the federal courthouse in Jefferson City, Missouri. He received a BA from Amherst College in 1992 and his JD from Harvard Law School in 1995. He was elected student body president at Amherst and Harvard. Judge Epps began his legal career in service to our country as an Air Force JAG officer, special assistant U.S. attorney, and special assistant counsel for Senator John C. Danforth on the Waco investigation. Later, as a trial lawyer in private practice specializing in civil and criminal litigation, he was named partner at two prestigious law firms and was head of litigation at a financial services firm and chief compliance officer at a large cable company. Since 2012, he has served on the teaching faculty of Harvard Law School's Trial Advocacy Work Group. Prior to joining the bench, Judge Epps was listed in the Best Lawyers in America and Missouri and Kansas Super Lawyers. Near and dear to our hearts, Judge Epps has been a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers since 2015. Welcome, Judge Epps. It's so wonderful to have you here today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Amy. It's wonderful to be here with you. I really appreciate the invitation. I have long admired your trial lawyer career. You have had enormous success in product liability work as well as medical malpractice work. I love your law firm. So it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I do appreciate very much that recognition. Thank you for that. I want to start with your recent publications, law review uh, articles relating to two really important topics and interesting topics. The first Uh, was published in the Missouri Law Journal in the winter of 2021 entitled Black Lawyers of Missouri, 150 Years of Progress and Promise. And then on the heels of that in 2022 was the University of Maryland Law Journal of Race, Religion, Gender, and Class. And that article is entitled The Jackie Robinsons of the Federal Judiciary, examining the appointment of the first black federal judges. And I will say I've read both of these articles and I really love the historical perspective that you've brought to all of us. If And we should all be more interested in the journey of these lawyers. Where were you inspired to write these articles? The short story, um, these accounts have literally changed my life. I grew up in suburban St. Louis and went away for college and law school on the East Coast. And I was either a freshman or sophomore at Amherst College when I was feeling uh, happy that I chose that institution, but I felt like an African-American student at a white school. And at one point, a Black classmate asked me if I had ever heard the book entitled Black Men of Amherst. I had not. He said, you better get to the library, grab a copy, and maybe that's going to change your perspective. And so I got a copy of that book by Harold Wade Jr. and just started reading all these accounts of African-American students who had attended Amherst as early as 1826. And uh, there were a group of graduates in that time frame. Again, the school was pretty much segregated. The Black students couldn't live with the white students. The Black students couldn't socialize with the white students. Black students couldn't go to the dean's house or the president's house, but there were um, a handful of black students at Amherst in the teens, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. And the one that captured my imagination was William Henry Hasty, who was America's first Article III judge. And Judge Hasty, as a student at Amherst, graduated number one in the class. That always was inspirational to me. During segregated days, he was the number one student and a great athlete. He went on to Harvard Law School, where he was on the Harvard Law Review. Interestingly, his cousin, Charles Hamilton Houston, had graduated from Amherst um, about a decade earlier and also had gone to Harvard Law School. Also African-American from Washington, D.C., who graduated number one in his class, was on the Harvard Law Review. Those two gentlemen went off to form that strategy that led to Brown v. Board of Education. So they argued a number of seminal cases 
at the trial court level, at the appellate level that led toward desegregation of our society, they've always fascinated me. And so that really got me interested in history, um, Black lawyer history, um, Black judicial history. And, and that actually led to decades later, me actually writing law review articles for the first time in my life. I was not on law review in law school. I was so engrossed with trying to be in a courtroom. So I took a trial advocacy workshop in law school in the early 90s and joined the Harvard Legal Aid Bureau so I could actually go to court representing indigent individuals throughout the Boston metro area. I did not have time for such silly exercises as writing law review articles or editing um, other law review articles. So I waited until I was 50 years old before I wrote my first law review article. It is not lost on me, having heard that story, that you also are an Amherst undergrad and a Harvard law grad, uh, not unlike what you've described as as one or several of your heroes, including Judge Hasty, who... I learned from reading your article, was the first Black jurist uh, appointed and confirmed to the circuit courts. Is that correct? That is correct. And under FDR, he was actually appointed a United States district judge for the Virgin Islands. And that was back in the 30s when it was a four-year term. So that's an Article I position, at least it was then. And so it was 1949 when our own Missouri president appointed William Henry Hasty to the Third Circuit. Uh, that was 1949, a recess appointment, and it was much later in 1950, well into 1950, when a U.S. Senate that held him up for almost nine months actually confirmed him to be the nation's first Article Three judge sitting there in Philadelphia. What's interesting about his story is, as you gleaned from reading his account, was that there were a number of Black lawyers opposed that's because Judge Hasty had no connection to Philadelphia. So they were wondering, why would the president plop in a Washington, D.C. slash Virgin Islands Black guy to be the first ever? Don't we have wonderful Black lawyers in Philadelphia, Mr. President? And so he caught it from all communities, but was confirmed and served until his death in 1976. Um, one thing I'm really proud of that is not in the article, but being um, a graduate of Amherst College, I attended that school when we would meet in the in the chapel, Johnson Chapel, for very important gatherings, opening convocation, there would be certain graduation ceremonies held there. But the walls were full of white people. And I never understood that, especially as an older student who had read Black Men at Amherst. And by the way, Amherst was all men until 76. First class of women to graduate truly was 1980, um, uh, when a lot of those schools went co-ed. But I never understood why there weren't of color on the wall. And one thing my class did under the leadership of a gentleman named Tom Esch and myself, we um, got the class to raise money as our senior gift to commission a portrait of Judge Hasty. So Judge Hasty was the first to integrate Johnson Chapel. And the blessing time has passed and um, the place has gotten to be much more diverse and much more progressive. There are other African-Americans um, depicted there in Johnson Chapel now, including Charles Hamilton Houston, who had a portrait in the Frost Library, uh, Robert Frost Library, when I was a student, but they moved that portrait to the chapel much later. Um, now there are women displayed there, including a woman named Rose Oliver, who, who taught me as a student at Amherst. She was the first woman to be tenured at Amherst College, and she's now deceased, but her portrait also hangs in the chapel. So I'm really excited when I go back to the school now that there's a lot more diversity on the walls. I don't like being in spaces that don't reflect our society and the contributions of all. And that is so important to walk into a room or look around the room and see yourself. Um, and, and I'm really inspired by that, that you noticed that, because I, I think that's lost on a lot of people, because you don't think looking at portraits on a wall really makes a difference to, in a way, it's an othering situation, a microaggression, I guess. You don't really notice that and, unless you don't see yourself. So was it difficult to, to change minds or get people to understand that that was important? You know, with my classmates, wonderful group of individuals, we, we, we saw the world a little differently from the 
previous generations. So no one thought twice about raising money to honor one of Amherst's first black graduates who went off to accomplish so much. Um, but I do agree with your assessment. When you don't see yourself reflected, you, you either think, uh, you know, in your case, women haven't contributed to society enough to be honored. And in my case, African-Americans haven't contributed enough to be honored. And that's usually not the case. I, I was in Kansas City about two weeks ago at a retirement ceremony for Nanette Lowry, a district judge you might know, mm -hmm. but we, we unveiled her portrait. And um, as sad as it is in 2023, I watched her portrait be hung in our ceremonial courtroom there in Kansas City, which reflects one half of our state, the Western District of Missouri, she being the first woman to be on it there. She was the first uh, woman appointed as an Article III district judge um, in our court, and she served from 70, I guess, 1996. She was a Clinton appointee until, you know, um, just the last two weeks, and, and now she's really selling off into the sunset, having served senior status for a number of years. But it was humbling to watch. I, I saw the emotion on her face. And so what's interesting, I know you practice in St. Louis, so um, you are familiar with some of the folks I'm about to mention, but Nanette was number one in her class at the University of Missouri School of Law after attending UCLA undergrad. And believe it or not, she could not get a job in our legal profession. She tried at a number of large firms in Kansas City and St. Louis and elsewhere. But it was an attorney general, a newly elected attorney general named Jack Danforth, who gave her a shot. And Nanette gave him a shout out at the ceremony. He wasn't there, but said, you know, thank God for Attorney General Jack Danforth, who later, as you know, became a um, U.S. senator and served for three terms and later a U.N. ambassador and head of the Waco investigation and a partner at my old law firm there in St. Louis, Dow Bennett, and just an incredible human being. But that job pretty much launched her career. She worked there with now Justice Clarence Thomas. She worked there with John Ashcroft, who later became our governor and a U.S. Attorney General. She worked there with Kit Bond, who later became governor and a U.S. Senator and whose name graces my courthouse here in Jefferson City. Mm -hmm. um, so being in that, that orbit changed everything for her. And it's because one person gave her a chance and I think those individuals focused, who I focused on in that recent scholarship, they all have stories like that too. Not given a chance, marginalized, but usually there's a story of individuals giving them a chance and, and, and they ran with it and became quite successful. One of my heroes, and I don't know if it came through in that article on the history of black lawyers and judges in Missouri, but Ted McMillian, the first African-American to serve as a trial court judge in Missouri, an appellate judge in the state of Missouri, the first black to serve on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. He's a hero of mine. I, he swore me into the bar, by the way. The first and only time I ever met him was in 1995. I'd been overseas when my class was sworn into the bar. When I got back to the States, fortunately, I had a good friend who was serving as his court law clerk, and she set it up for me to go downtown and get sworn in by Judge McMillian, but you might know that he graduated number one in his class at St. Louis University School of Law, and he could not get a job in St. Louis working for any law firm. Um, no government agency would hire him until a guy named Edward L. L. Sr., uh, the circuit attorney for the city of St. Louis, gave him a shot and gave a shot to a number of African-American men and all of them went off to be leaders in our profession after getting a chance to serve as prosecutors in the city and not just prosecute African-Americans, but they were allowed to prosecute people regardless of race, regardless of gender. That had not been done before. Um, I know you're probably pretty close to my mentor, um, Edward Dow Jr., who I first met working for Jack Danforth in the Waco investigation in the late 90s. Well, Ed's kind of lived his life like that. And it is a outstanding um, boutique that traditionally has been one of the most diverse law firms ever to, to, um, to thrive in St. Louis. I've often been disappointed how segregated some of our law firms are in the state of Missouri. Um, but Ed was quite intentional with who he wanted to practice with, not only as his partners, but the associate ranks. Um, last time I checked, 
that the majority of lawyers there, well, a large majority, how about that, are women. I, I, I haven't kept track as to if they're majority there yet. And then a large percent of, of African-Americans that he can't keep, you know, one left to be a federal judge and, you know, one now is the circuit attorney for the city of St. Louis, Gabe Gore. Um, another is the city councilor for the city of St. Louis, Sheena Hamilton. Yeah. I could go on and on with the number <laughs> of lawyers, white and black, who've left, but it's just an impressive group of people. And the Dow family has been uh, quite serious about diversity, as has the Danforth family. I think you know what they've done at Washington University in our backyard, with um, increasing the diversity of the student body there and all the years. Jack's brother served as chancellor there. So I could go on and on, and I feel like I'm being long-winded, Amy, but that is just a passion of mine to focus in on stories of achievement, especially when facing enormous adversity. And what's interesting about the scholarship you're highlighting is that some look at it and go, well, Willie's just writing about Black history, Black lawyers, Black judges. Well, guess what? It's our history because in every last profile, there are people of all backgrounds who are, are helping some of those individuals serve our community, are be highly successful as lawyers or judges. Um, so it's, it's our collective history. It's just not Black history. And and I want to pull out a few things that you just mentioned. And, and one of them is obviously perseverance, because I can't imagine having desire and the skills to want to go to law school and to either be turned down because of your color or your gender or having been accepted into law school and then have no way to practice law once you accomplish that goal. Um, so I, and it's something that I think it's possible that some of us have felt different ways about, well, I got, I, I was disappointed because I didn't get this opportunity, that opportunity, but that pales in comparison to, I mean, true barriers to advancement, true barriers to being successful. So perseverance, I think, is a word that comes to mind when I read these stories and just commitment to, to moving forward. I believe it was Judge McCree in the University of Maryland Law Journal article who was questioned about whether he could be fair to, to black criminals or whether he would be too fair to black criminals simply because of his race. And I noticed that story throughout a couple of the paragraphs regarding these judges. Did you see that a lot? Amy, I thank you for raising that issue. It's just one I find fascinating, humbling. I'm saddened by it, but it is our history. Um, during my third year at Harvard Law School, I was taught by Leon Higginbotham in a third year seminar. Um, I'm not going to remember the name of the course, but he was one of America's first black federal judges. He served on the trial court, federal trial court in uh, Philadelphia, and then later elevated to the Third Circuit, where um, Christie had served. But early in Judge Higginbotham's career, he got a race discrimination case. The plaintiff, African-American, the white defense lawyers actually moved for him to recuse himself, saying that because he's African-American, he could not be fair to adjudicate such a case. And he wrote a blistering order denying that motion for him to recuse himself and pretty much just said, well, how about my white colleagues who handle discrimination lawsuits? Can they not be fair? Can they not sit because they're white? And if there's a black plaintiff and a white corporation, do you automatically assume that judge is going to be biased toward the white corporation? No, we're human beings. We have an oath to treat the litigants um, fairly and impartially, and that's what I intend to do. And he was able to stay on that case. As a trial court judge, the uh, Court of Appeals didn't see it differently. And Judge, if I could follow up, I did uh, find a, the quote by Judge Wade McCree. And early in his judicial career, a, a lawyer had urged that he not preside over a case that pitted a white against a black. And Judge McCree replied that he would recuse himself uh, from the case only if a mulatto judge could be found, adding that, quote, the ultimate of arrogance is achieved when a white person thinks another white person can make a judgment without being influenced by race and a black person cannot. And that just really struck a chord with me and is exactly what you're explaining 
which is you just don't get to assume that we all can't, if you can put it aside, then why do you think I can't put it aside? And Higginbotham had a similar quote that I found compelling that you've already mentioned. He says, I concede that I am black. I do not apologize for that obvious fact. I take rational pride in my heritage, just as most other ethnics take pride in theirs. However, that one is black does not mean ipso facto that he is anti-white, no more than being Jewish implies being anti-Catholic, or being Catholic implies being anti-Protestant. And it's that same concept. You can't assume just because we are who we are and we live as, as we are and have grown up this way that we can't put things aside. That's the very nature of being fair and impartial, which is demanded of us, but particularly of judges. And I just know from from what you've told us today and, and uh, just watching judges in general, you can do that. You put that aside. That's what the job requires, and it can be done. And to assume otherwise is, as McCree said, really the height of arrogance. You know, we're, we're all human, and we just have to be honest with ourselves and look in the mirror. You know, what is our relationship? Um, can we be fair? And if for whatever reason we're, 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 we're against some party or for some party, we're not the right judge. And, and there's so many cases, so many judges to go around. No big deal. And I take, I take cases from my colleagues who can't be fair because they, they know somebody involved. And I don't mind handling those, those situations. But thank you for reading that quote. That's just so powerful. I want to move forward in time to Thurgood Marshall. And, and by, th- by forward in time, I mean, if I'm looking at your handy dandy graph, um, the first, and, and this is the federal judiciary, the first we've talked about Judge William H. Hasty, And again, the similarities between you two is I'm inspired by that. And I know, and I know you went on to Harvard Law School and it couldn't have been far from your mind that Again, one of your heroes had taken that similar course, um, but not just one, right? Several had taken that similar course. And then James Parsons was the second judge, and he was a district judge in Northern District of Illinois. And here's what I find interesting between those two, 11 years, 11 years. And we talked about Judge Hasty, and I had, I'm glad you mentioned that about Judge Hasty because I'd seen where uh, FDR had appointed him um, in, in the district of the Virgin Islands. But I guess I didn't realize that was an Article One appointment. At the time, it was a term position. And so it wasn't lifetime tenure. It wasn't general jurisdiction in the, in the sense of, you know, our, our trial court judgeships here in the States, so, or at least here on the mainland. So that was not considered, I think, the ultimate barrier. Yeah. I think it, that came later. It's nice to think that that happened in 1937, but really it wasn't until 1950 uh, with Truman when he became an Article III judge. And then Judge Parsons in 1961. So we have 11 years. So broke a barrier in 1950, and then it took 11 more years for President Kennedy to be elected and to really start what appears to be the modern era of more equality in our courts. And then we've talked about Judge McCree, and then we come to the fourth, Judge Thurgood Marshall. And his career, obviously, is something to be admired. Um, I, I love how he, how you write where he was not that great or not that easy of a student early on in his, <laughs> in his career. And then, again, one of my favorite twist stories is that he applied to the University of Maryland for law school. Um, obviously the same place that this article was published, and but denied admission in 1930 because of his race. And then went on to Howard Law School and entered his career, went to work for the NAACP, and of course became legal, chief legal counsel there. But then what happened in the University of Maryland after that? Well, as you know, one of the first lawsuits he brought was against the University of Maryland to Fancy that. segregate that school with a gentleman named Donald Murray, who ironically, Amherst College graduate. So uh, relationships, relationships, relationships. So true. With Hasty working along with him and was able to get that done. And that's one of his proudest accomplishments. And so I think Justice Marshall was always proud of being a graduate of Howard University School of Law, the uh, 
you know, and Howard being um, one of the first schools in the country established for African-Americans after the Civil War and definitely the first black law school established. He was always very, very proud of his association there. Um, but it always stuck in his craw that he could have gone to the University of Maryland, but for his race. And there are just so many stories like that. And, you know, right here, I live in Columbia, Missouri, right here in my backyard is the University of Missouri and the University of Missouri School of Law. And when I process the fact that, you know, Mizzou Law did not get his first black graduate until 1968. That was two years before I was born. That was a year after my parents were married down in Mississippi. The Gaines decision is one of those world-class Supreme Court decisions that, that chipped away at segregation and told the state of Missouri, you either need to admit blacks to the University of Missouri School of Law or establish a separate law school. And of course, our legislature at the time said, you know what, we'll just establish a separate law school. And they established Lincoln University, not down the street from my courthouse here in Jefferson City where the main campus sits, but they set up that law school where you are, Amy, over there in St. Louis, where most of the blacks in this state lived at the time. And that was the legislature's way of fulfilling what the Supreme Court demanded, that there either be integrated education or separate but equal schools. And, and arguably, they established Lincoln University School of Law to be that separate equal law school that produced a number of Black leaders that would later help change the United States and change the state of Missouri. Um, so history is fascinating. One thing I love about Thurgood Marshall, I think about all the contributions he made in the area of civil rights mm -hmm. and all the barriers he broke down while risking his life and while being away from his family. That could not have been easy to have been married to Thurgood Marshall, to be a child of Thurgood Marshall. He was never there. He was constantly, constantly trying the most important cases of that time. And when he decides it's time to shift gears, the Kennedy White House, you know, they let him know that they want him to be the first black on the um, district um, court there in New York, the Southern District of New York, um, which is sort of a big deal even today. And Thurgood Marshall thought about it and said, well, I don't have the temperament to be a trial lawyer. Uh, I mean, a trial judge, rather. I, I'd have to inter interact with trial lawyers. I don't quite have the patience. I say what's on my mind. Um, I think I have more of a temperament for the Court of Appeals. You know, there's just oral argument and then I'm in my bubble and I'm writing decisions. I think that's where I want to be. And Bobby Kennedy supposedly told him, well, Jack wants to put you on the trial court and it's either that or nothing. And Thurgood Marshall allegedly said something along the effects of, you know, Bobby, I'm black. I've had nothing my whole life. So I'll take nothing if that's it, and storms out the room. I then, through oh research, goodness. understand that an African-American was nominated um, for that trial court position and um, didn't, didn't get confirmed, didn't get through the process somehow. And then they came back to Thurgood Marshall and said, we'll be happy to put you on the Second Circuit. And so that, that's how Marshall uh, went from being a civil rights lawyer to um, serving on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. And as you know, it was no easy task to get confirmed because of his civil rights work there. And what's interesting, so you now have an African-American who isn't a means, uh, was not born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Money was an issue. Uh, he's got a lifetime job. Um, back then, those judgeships paid really, really well compared to private practice. And, and he's got a lifetime job on the Second Circuit, but he's board stiff. And they dangle the job of solicitor general in front of him, where he will become the nation's first black solicitor general, which, as some would say, the 10th justice. And he went to his wife and she said, are you sure you want to give up a lifetime job? <laughs> right. really?" And, because you know, that job you serve at the pleasure of the president. And this is now LBJ who wants to make him the nation's first black solicitor general, essentially the nation's top advocate before the Supreme Court, and he takes a chance. And some of the Black press thought this was just the first step for him to become the first Black um, justice, associate justice on the Supreme Court. Um, there were, I understand, no promises made, but he took the job, did a fabulous job at it, and, and, and later became the nominee for the Supreme Court. What's interesting, I understand, is that on the eve of the president having to decide who to put on the court, he got cold feet about Marshall. 
He thought it would really, really, really wrinkle the feathers of Southern senators and he could lose the South and it would be disastrous to put Mr. Civil Rights on the, on the highest court. And he had advisors to say, Thurgood Marshall is civil rights. Thurgood Marshall is Black America. You know, sir, you have to do this. You have to put Judge Marshall on the highest court. There's nobody else. And he's like, well, what about that guy, Hasty? You know, he's been quietly working in Philadelphia. I know he has a civil rights background, but he's not, he's not toxic. He's not a lightning rod, you know, for the conservatives. So maybe we should do William Hasty. And they were like, no offense to Judge Hasty, but he's not Judge Marshall. And so the president entered that fight to put Thurgood on the nation's highest court. And I think it was a nine month ordeal. You've got the article in front of you. Remind me if that was how long confirmation took, but um, that was during a time when confirmation for lifetime appointments for white gentlemen took about a week, if that. And there would be one hearing and it would be less than an hour. But in, in Marshall's um, journeys on the bench for both the Second Circuit and the Supreme Court, uh, multiple hearings, multiple months, um, a lot of dirt being dig up, a lot of folks saying things about him that just weren't true, but he, he made it through the process both times. I found that the contention for Judge Marshall and others uh, was very extreme. And what I saw was almost a theme, uh, particularly by Southern senators, accusing Judge Marshall, and I believe also Judge Motley and probably all of them, of being communists. And uh, based on their civil rights, I don't even understand the connection between... <laughs> being accused of being a communist and having a history of promoting and fighting for civil rights. But I think as we find in modern politics, there are buzzwords that make people, people frightened and they're not going to be outwardly racist about it, but they find surrogates for that. And so it seemed to me that being accused of being a communist was just, was just cover for what that Mississippi Senator really uh, wanted to convey. I, I just see that theme in in many of the judges and many of the lawyers that you've researched. I want to ask about the the lone woman in the research, and and also you chose the first nine federal jurists. Was there any magic about the number nine? You know, I started out wanting to write about the first. And at some point I did have to cut off the number. So, but with respect to the University of Maryland Law Journal of Race, Religion, Gender, and Class, I did not want to um, go way over broad. So I will say the initial draft of this article, it had 12. And because of space, the law journal asked me to reduce it to nine. And then with kicking off the article discussing this as the um, Jackie Robinsons of the federal judiciary, I thought it was neat that you know, obviously there are nine um, baseball players on the field, and it ended up being a, I think, a cute nod to those who love baseball with nine. But within the nine, you're right, just one woman, um, um, quite a force in her own right. Um, I, I met Constance Baker Motley once at a Black alumni um, reunion weekend at Harvard Law School. She was being presented the um, Harvard Law School Medal of Freedom, she and those who argued Brown v. Board who were still alive or the descendants of that case. It was the only time I met her. Memory serves me, this is back in the late 90s, maybe 1999. Um, I had seen portraits of her. I have I had read accounts of her, but to be in her presence was quite humbling. And without detracting from those great civil rights advocates. It was obvious in the research that was done that um, it was tough to be a woman among those men. And it was during a day when men could say certain things that men should not say professionally. They could look certain ways at women in a professional setting that I would like to think doesn't happen nearly as much. So she was a tough cookie. And, um, and, and one of the, um, a uh, few true politicians among the first nine black federal judges. You know, she had served as president of one of New York's top boroughs um, in an elected office. She was quite the politico and um, I'm thrilled that she is the first woman to serve on the federal bench there in the Southern District of New York. 
I did read in your article that Judge Motley was considered for the Second Circuit when Justice Marshall became the Solicitor General, but the rumor was that the chief didn't want a female colleague. I also read that there was a falling out between Judge Motley and Robert Kennedy. And I don't know and and I don't know if there's more to that story or not, but I found it interesting that she had, you know, two barrels, right, shooting at her, both both race and gender, and it was affecting her ability to advance and but she she broke right through it. She did. And What I love about those stories is obviously um, white lawyers and other lawyers of color who aren't Black, you know, experience the same. So much of it is a chess game, it's politics. There are so many people um, qualified when there is an opening on the federal bench. Um, But lightning has to strike, and you're right, lightning did not strike for her to be placed on the Second Circuit where I think she wanted to be um, because of politics. But... um, she nevertheless kept her head up, and I think she enjoyed her time as a trial judge. Well, and as you say, the Southern District in New York is a very dynamic court with a lot of interesting cases that come before it. And she was there for 39 years. So I, I trust that she was able to leave her mark throughout many, many of those years. I want to ask you about your classmate, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, give us a scoop. Was she a good student? You know, so she was on Law Review. I did not make Harvard Law Review. She made Law Review. She was one of our top students. She was kind, considerate, serious. Um, that has never changed. I, I cannot think of a better person to serve on the highest court. I'm a huge fan because of the kind of person she is, mm-hmm. the kind of wife she is, the kind of mom she is. Um, everyone I know adores her, regardless of ideology, regardless of race, gender, orientation. She's a fabulous human being and is quite giving. What's interesting, her life has changed dramatically, as you may suspect. And there are just so many organizations and entities that want her to come speak or want her to accept an award. And sometimes I'll get called. And I'm like, I wish you had called her about five years ago. And she was just as impressive then when she was on the trial court in D.C., when she was on the appellate court in the D.C. Circuit. But this Supreme Court thing is a different animal. So I I just feel bad that there's only one Tanji and there's not enough to go around. And she's very, very serious about the work. She's not someone who's in that job for the status and the celebrity and the publicity. Um, She's deadly serious about getting it right. And she spends the time getting it right. Well, hopefully we'll have many, many years of her serving on our Supreme Court to look forward to. As a member of the American College of Trial Lawyers, uh, one of our main missions is to educate the public on uh, civility and and judicial independence and protection of the judiciary. Uh, that is something I think it is incumbent upon all of us to try to support. And I'm hoping that our membership and lawyers, uh, not just the general public, but I'm hoping that our membership uh, appreciates that and lives by it as well. Leadership puts out statements when appropriate. And generally, the members are first class and, and truly believe in civility and understand that's just an important bedrock of um, our system. And if it's not there, we've lost. And so I appreciate leadership of the college and the men and women who comprise it. Um, I do take great joy when I see um, uh, more diversity in the incoming classes. I think it's an organization that should continue to look far and wide for talent. That's not always been the case um, with women and racial minorities. And I'm just really excited when I do get my magazines and see more diverse incoming classes. I, I, and, and, and then lawyers who not only arise, but in the public sector, there are some incredible lawyers um, serving the United States, serving their various states and counties. And I'm glad that more of those lawyers are getting into the college these days as well. In addition to the articles that you've been writing, I did notice that you have published a new book just very recently. It's entitled Preparing for Federal Jury Trials. And tell me about that. 
You know, I have a, uh, a mentor at the American Bar Association who was on the editorial board for the ABA book board and approached me. I had written some articles for the Judges Journal and some other ABA publications. And he said, hey, what about writing a book about trial practice? I'm like, mm, Judge Dixon, I have no desire to write a book. <laughs> and ironically, I had written one as a third year student. My advisor helped me get it published, you know, a book on how to get into law school. And so the blessings in being able to produce that book was to actually um, thank a number of those mentors along the way, you know, including those who taught me how to get a document and evidence, who taught me how to deliver an opening statement, not an opening argument, those who taught me the beauty of having a trial notebook and, and staying organized throughout trial, just a lot of little tidbits. I was able to um, reduce that, you know, one, one piece of work there. I was grateful to be able to have friends to actually be interviewed for the book. So that those who want to read that book can also get someone else's opinion about what it takes to really get a trial lawyer and what it takes to a federal jury trial. It strikes me when you mention uh, thanking your mentors and, and, and discussing trial tips with your mentors that uh, it harkens back to our discussion a little bit ago about seeing portraits on the wall that look like yourself. I think you understand the importance of mentoring. You, sir, are also a mentor. And I know from uh, what you've described how important it is. And I find myself lucky enough to also uh, mentor young lawyers, typically young female lawyers, which I really appreciate. And one of the things that I like to tell other people is when I'm asked to help someone mentor, go to lunch, give advice, I get more out of that. I, I believe I get more out of that interaction uh, than the mentee, so to speak. And people think that I don't understand that. You're so busy. Who, who has the time? And the answer is you get to sit for a minute and reflect on what your experiences have been. And if your desire is to um, help people along, give a hand up, there's nothing better than showing someone a path. It may not be the right path for them, but it is a path that has been trod that could make it easier for someone. And why? And that makes me feel good. So I don't understand why more people don't flock to it. And I, I can only imagine it's because everyone's very busy. But I know you find time to do that. Do you have the same feelings about mentoring? I do have the same feelings. And bless you for mentoring, especially the young women coming up, because unfortunately, um, at large law firms, um, despite the fact that more women graduate law school these days than men, the numbers at the partnership ranks of our nation's largest law firms are still overwhelmingly white and male. I don't know. I haven't seen the latest numbers. Is it 30% of the partnership might be women now nationwide? It is. is it more? It, the numbers are, are very static. I'm a 96 grad from law school, and our class was 50-50. And so that was, uh, you know, a long time ago. <laughs> and, and the numbers of equity partners of women are right at nationwide around 15%. 15 percent. 15 percent. Yeah. I mean, okay. associates start out pretty good numbers, but reaching those higher titles and, and higher levels have been very difficult. Amy, you add in the plaintiff side. I mean, I mean there are just so few heavy hitting women plaintiff lawyers in our state, and the same can be said for African-American plaintiff lawyers, and it's heartbreaking. It is. They're just, Amy, I'll be hard-pressed to, like, name on two hands how many peers you truly have who are women um, on your side of the fence. We've got to change this thing, and the number's even worse for, I think, Black lawyers trying to do what you do. Uh, yeah, and, and I have spent many years gathering anecdotal evidence as to why these numbers aren't growing, aren't seeming to fit with the number of graduates. And it's multifactorial. There's lots of reasons women take themselves out. There are barriers. There's a combination of all that. But, but as I said, I think that the only tried and true way that I know of to try to help someone along the way is just to sit with them and talk to them and give them, give them thoughts about how to get where they want to go. Amen. And one thing I try to do with my mentees, I try to expose them to individuals they've never heard of, 
whether they're local, whether they're in other states. I talk about their backgrounds. I think about what they've overcome, and I think about what they have. I talk about what they have achieved because I want them to know that no matter what their circumstances are, there's someone who looks just like them, mm-hmm. who has achieved major success. You know, not all highly accomplished lawyers are from the best environment. Some are, obviously, mm-hmm. but not all. And and so I really try to emphasize that. And I'm really sometimes surprised by, um, you know, this current generation going through law school. You know, they don't know anything about the Charles Hamilton Houston's, the mm-hmm. William Hastings, um, the Willie Gary's, uh, yeah. <laughs> the Isaac Bird's, the, uh, the Dennis Sweets. They don't know much about some of the top um, trial lawyers and, and judges that have come before. And so I try to educate them about who's who when I do sit down with them, the way you sit down with your mentees. Mm-hmm. Over this Martin Luther King holiday, Judge Epps, I would encourage everyone to look at, read, study your articles uh, for inspiration and for history, just understanding what others have gone through. I think that allows us to to do better, to be better and when we understand what others have gone through. What would you like to leave our listeners with? One, Happy King Day. I think it's a, a very important national holiday and so many people fought and died for not only all of us to be able to live in a society that is less segregated, but to have something called a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, holiday. Two, I do believe we are better off as a society today than we were um, in 1968 when Dr. King's life was unfairly taken from us. And because we're moving forward as a nation and as a, as a world, I think each of you, especially the younger folks listening to this, you know, you have responsibility to move the needle forward and, and, and to use your skills to better our society and to use your time to help folks coming behind you. Um, I, um, I'm fortunate to know somebody who recently was mentored by Amy, and I know it meant a lot to that young lady and everything you said resonated with her. I don't know what she'll end up doing. I don't know if you all will ever work on the same side of the fence together or whether she'll go defense side or whether she'll be interest, but, um, taking time out makes a huge difference. And so I do want to encourage all of us King holiday, you know, find a young lawyer, law student, we can spend our time and, and make a difference in, in their lives. I noticed that you lost your father about a, a year ago. How were you inspired by him? I know that he uh, had a PhD in early childhood education, was very well respected uh, in this area and nationwide. So tell us about that relationship. Did lose my father last December 27th there at Christian Hospital in the suburban St. Louis and um, complications from a severe stroke. And he had had health complications for about two decades. But my parents are, are easily my first teachers and the true heroes um, of my life. They were born in rural Mississippi, the first in their families to go off to college. Um, my father attended Mississippi Valley State University in a tiny town called Itabina, Mississippi, um, African-American school, and my mom, Alcorn State University, also a black school. And this is at a time they entered their freshman year of college in 62. So black students could not go to Mississippi State or Ole Miss. They were prohibited and they had gone to segregated high schools and segregated schools their entire lives. But um, Kansas State University, to its credit, had a program in the early 70s through the 80s recruiting African-Americans from the South to come up to Manhattan, Kansas and earn PhDs in education and to go back South and teach um, an undereducated teacher class how to be better teachers. And so my parents were part of that experiment and very grateful for that experience. They were able to go to Manhattan and then return to Mississippi and teach down there a number of years. Um, My family ended up leaving the South in the early 80s. My father and mom were recruited to Southern Illinois University, um, not in Edwardsville, not in Carbondale, but Southern Illinois University on the East St. Louis campus. And very impoverished community, um, 99% Black. And their roles were to, in particular my dad, to write various grants to get the federal dollars into the community 
um, to better serve that that population from the Head Start dollars. My dad wrote the grants to get the Head Start program there, science awareness, upward bound. If there is a federal program geared toward helping out underprivileged communities, my dad learned about it, sought the grants and got it funded through the university. And later he was in charge of that campus as the campus um, director. My mom had similar roles at the university, but they spent most of their careers there. And what's interesting when you talk about mentorship and, mm-hmm. and, and parenting, they had incredible parents. Now, their parents never graduated high school, um, but I'll start with my mom's side of the family. You know, my grandfather, David Bacon Jr., was the president of the local NAACP branch wow. um, following the Brown v. Board of Education decision. And he worked with community leaders to desegregate the public schools following Brown v. Board. Now, he was not successful in the 50s in doing so. The the house was stoned. The truck out front was stoned. Um, There were bombings around town when these individuals um, presented a petition to the school board in Adams County to desegregate the schools. The names of all the African-Americans who signed that petition was published in the local newspaper there. And all those Blacks lost their well-paying jobs and were, were not hired by other businesses that they were listed. Horrible situation. Wow. On my dad's side, my um, grandmother, Nancy Ellis Epps, she was um, very big on voting rights. And so she housed a number of freedom riders in her home at great risk to the family, great risk to her. She was one of the first black women to vote in Holmes County, Mississippi, Chula, Greenwood area. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were from activists, um, God-fearing people who did not think it was right that Black people were denied um, access to so much in the community. And so I love my parents for being great parents and also community leaders and servants. And in some ways, I think the judgeship I've taken kind of follows in their footsteps. It's public service. It's, it's, it's helping people who come across my path. It's me going out of my way to help individuals. Um, so I miss my dad greatly, but I'm very proud of what they accomplished. I mean, if you can imagine being born in rural Mississippi with not much of anything, mm-hmm. and you ended up getting not only a bachelor's degree, but a master's degree, and then a, a PhD, and then um, having these great academic careers, mainly in administration for both of them, they really set the example for me. And I hope to set the same kind of example for my daughter, who is now eight years old, and she did know my father. Uh, She misses my father, too. She actually remembers him, which is nice at that age. You know, you just don't know how long the memories will last, but we've got great pictures. I'm inspired by your personal story, and I really admire the time that you spend writing these articles. So we all have almost an encyclopedia uh, of knowledge that sits right here for us to learn and to just be better. So I appreciate you very much. Trial Tested is a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. Help us share these inspiring episodes about life and law by liking, subscribing, and reviewing our podcast. Thank you for listening.